And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, May 12th. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. On this episode, we dig into the disappointing start of the New York Mets. The beginning of their start was good. This was a team that was 14-7 and seven at one point. It's hard to believe that sitting here today as they're one game below 500 as play begins on Friday. We'll look at the overall assessment in the NL East where the Braves have pulled ahead early, but still plenty of quality teams in this division that could make things interesting in the months ahead. We're also going to talk about the Brewers window in the NL Central because Will used to be on the Brewers beat, knows that team inside and out as well, and that division is a bit of a mess, so the door seems wide open for any team capable of taking the reins to capitalize and kind of cruise into the postseason. We may have some pleasant surprises on this show as well as far as some teams and individuals that have stood out to us so far, but Will... Thanks for joining me today. I'm looking forward to uh, breaking down this disaster that has become the start of the Mets season, which if you're in it, if you're in New York and you're surrounded by the negativity, it probably feels worse than it does when you're 3,000 miles away like I am. I look at them. I look at the Yankees in last place and I say, look, it's May. They're going to be okay over time, but you get to watch this team each and every day. So What's going wrong for them so far? How could the very beginning of their season be so different than what we've seen over these last 16 games where they've gone 4-12? and 12? Yeah, Derek, good luck telling that to Mets fans that things are going to be okay. <laughs> there <are laughs> a long list of concerns of why that's wrong or why uh, so many changes need to take place. And hey, maybe a couple do, right? When you look at this roster, maybe maybe this is what they are, or, or maybe some of these concerns are bigger than others, right? For me, the, the biggest concern for me when I look at this team, it has to be the starting pitching. They're not getting, one, they're not getting quality performances pretty much ever. Um, they have the lowest amount of quality starts in Major League Baseball. Uh, I think with them and maybe the Oakland Athletics, which is never the company that you want to keep, right? Um, and not only are they not getting quality, they're also just not getting any sort of length out of these guys either. They're averaging less than five innings per start. Again, that's not where you want to be. And some of that's partially because they're missing key figures in that rotation. And they have missed key guys throughout so far this early part of the season, whether that was Max Scherzer or whether that was Justin Verlander missing in the entire month of April. Also, Carlos Carrasco has, has been out for the past couple of weeks. Jose Quintana has yet to pitch. Um, so those are concerned when you look at just the age of this rotation and you say to yourself, okay, well, this isn't exactly surprising um, on one hand because of the age, but also you look at some of these guys' track records, maybe Jose Quintana, where he was a guy throughout his career that you'd peg for like 30 starts and X amount of innings, and you felt pretty good about that. So like there's a twinge of bad luck there, but overall it's 
hey, this is the risk you take when you deal with guys who are up there in age, no matter how elite or how quality the performance can be. Like, this is the trade-off that you make. And so in the early part of the season, they felt, I guess, the uh, the backside of that, the wrong side of that trade-off for a little while so far. And then, therefore, like, they've been asking guys, whether it was David Peterson or a couple of other names, uh, Tyler McGill, uh, Joey Lucchese, other guys, and, and sometimes they pitched okay. Most of the times, the, the, the group has underperformed, and it's kind of led to a, a larger burden for this bullpen. And so that's a key concern for me because that's something that, like, okay, you can make things work right now, um, but over the long haul, that's probably going to catch up to you. Uh, more often than not, those middle relievers, how often can they bail you out? How often can you go to Steven Nagosik for three innings and, and expect him to, to, to bail you out and, and bridge something to a, uh, a win somehow? It, it's happened. Um, I'm not sure how much it's going to happen, and it's not, it's not a knock on him. It's just the fact that those things are hard to do. <laughs> you don't have too many guys doing that and doing that consistently. That's not um, – a method of sustainability right there. So for me, that's my biggest concern. And then since the calendar has turned to May, some of these guys in this lineup um, have just not really performed too well. Um, Pete Alonso has a few home runs already. Uh, aside from that, he, he just the contact is missing that we saw in April from him. The quality at bats are, are kind of missing. Um, up and down the order, he's he's not alone. Lindor, McNeil, uh, Nimmo's numbers have been better than those guys, but still, it's just it, it, it's off from what you expect. And we haven't even mentioned Starling Marte yet in this in this ramble by me here of this of how many things have gone wrong. <laughs> um, and he's probably the 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 biggest name there that's kind of um underperformed to this point when you look at just the overall numbers so there, there's a lot here um to delve into and that's kind of like at the forefront those issues for me are at the forefront of like what's gone wrong recently teams should not be losing to the rockies the uh the reds uh, and, and even the tigers who have looked probably a little bit better than some expected yeah i think the most surprising thing for me is that when i looked at the mets depth chart going into this season i thought they were in a much better place this year than they were even a year ago. And even a year ago, compared to past seasons, they had done a lot to get better on their bench, to have that next starter up if someone went down be someone you could actually rely on for at least a handful of starts. So the fact that the depth players haven't come through uh, on the rotation side especially, that was something I really didn't see coming. Tyler McGill is mainly that guy that I thought, hey, if they need to turn to Tyler McGill for a handful of starts, April, May, kind of whenever... That could work. Tyler McGill showed us some pretty interesting things last year before he got hurt. David Peterson, even though I see him as more of a back-end guy, he's been a lot worse than I would have expected, too. Uh, the disappointing thing for me would be Kodai Singa. I mean, it's, it's a 4-14 ERA through seven starts. I know he had a really rough first inning in Cincinnati on Thursday. Settled down pretty nicely after that. But the problem seems to be walks. 23 walks in 37 innings for Kodai Singa. And I know there were some folks out there that saw the possibility of him becoming a high leverage reliever sooner rather than later. Obviously, the Mets are using him as a starter and will do that for the foreseeable future. But what have your impressions of Senga been through these first seven starts? Like you alluded to, those concerns were there when the Mets made this signing. And I heard them from opposing scouts, uh, rival evaluators, uh, just people who make decisions from other teams. And I said, like, look, what do you make of this guy? Is this, is this a good deal? Is this something that um, he can be an impact star? Because that's really what the Mets 
wanted when they signed Kodai Senga, right? Because they already had Justin Verlander. Obviously, they have Max Scherzer in the fold. And they were looking at their team and they were saying to themselves, okay, well, what's next? And what's next would be a number three guy, somebody who we could feel good about down the stretch in September, um, perhaps in the playoffs too, where we could give this guy the ball and he's an impact starter because that's what you need. And that's how this, that's what this team was lacking unless you thought really that highly of somebody like Jose Quintana or Carlos Carrasco, which I'm not sure if I did, and I'm not sure if the Mets did. So they, they turned to Kodai Senga, and they look at the potential, and that potential is still very much there, and we see it all the time when he pitches too. It's very tantalizing stuff. Um, the Reds game, like you mentioned, is a perfect example where you know, he had some bad luck in that first inning, but there were also a couple of hard hit balls. There was also a couple of mistakes, and – it's not the first time that he's missed location or or he's gotten hit a little bit in the first inning either. So um, that's kind of like the downside of like his his uh, start so far is that sometimes it takes a little while for him to kind of get rolling. And then the next inning in that start against the Reds, I think he shook out the side and he looked utter, utterly dominant. And it was like, where was this guy just 20 minutes ago? And, and why can't this guy just sustain this or um, look even – 80% this good or 90% this good um, in some of these innings. Like why does the, why do the wheels kind of fall off sometimes here? And partially that is, is something that I heard like going back to when he first signed with the Mets was that sometimes he just tries to be like way too fine with his pitches and he throws too many. And sometimes um, the lack of feel for certain pitches, he just can't really go to it in certain counts. And so for me, a lot of times when I look, it's it's not just that he falls behind on first pitch strikes. It's just he gets into these situations where it's like two one instead of being one two, and then you're making you're you put yourself in a situation where you know you can't. Could you go to that splitter in a two one count? I don't know. And if you do, and if they lay off, uh, which a lot of teams are, which a few couple of teams are, I should say now, it goes to three to one, and and then it's a walk situation, and so. Um, all that to say is that the concerns from like the rival evaluators, they they have surfaced and, and they're here. Um, can he figure it out? Sure, I think he can actually. Um, he's somebody that's worked his whole life to kind of get to this point. Um, very diligent worker, takes it really seriously. Uh, all those things as far as intangibles. I love about it uh, as far as what I've re- what I've heard from other people. Um, he's somebody who went to driveline early in the se- or early in the off season once he signed um, and before spring training. It's kind of get a better feel for some of these pitches that he's that he's using now. And again, you have to give the guy the benefit of the doubt that yes, it's like getting to the point where you are what you are in in, in the season, but it's still relatively early, especially for a guy who has never faced this type of competition, um, who is just not used to it, uh, who's not used to the ball still, um, who's had to deal with that, um, different catcher, different everything, D- language barrier, different country. Um, so it, it, you give the guy the benefit of the doubt there. Um, but nonetheless, those concerns about just the walk issues, the command issues, they're real. And he has to make some adjustments. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you look at projections for Kodai Singa for the rest of the season. And I know some projection systems uh, are better at accounting for the current run environment than others. You see mostly optimism. You see sub four ERAs. You see kind of low 120s or better whips. You see more than a strikeout per inning. But one system, one that I know adjusts to the run environment, is the bat. The bat has him at a 509 ERA and a 146 whip. If that's happening, that becomes problematic. But the other part of all of this is having Verlander and Scherzer healthy. Verlander is healthy. I think 
there's little to worry about with him on a performance basis. When we've seen Scherzer this year, Will, he hasn't quite been himself. We saw the quality start back in the opener against the Marlins. That was the only time all season he's gone six innings. He pitched well against the Padres in his third start. That was five innings, scoreless innings, one hit ball, six Ks. But he's got this neck issue right now, neck spasms. And I think the bigger concern maybe is the shoulder. So where are things at with Scherzer health-wise? And and how likely is it that we see him actually take at least a short stint on the IL soon to possibly get right? It's hard to say for now with with, with Max. Um, I will say, though, that he's expressed some optimism. Um since the next spasms, uh, since he experienced those next spasms, he's expressed some optimism that he will pitch at some point this weekend against the Nationals. And I've also heard from other folks that it's not believed to be related, like the issues with the neck and you know the back thing that he was dealing with. He didn't call it an injury; he called it an ailment. Uh, to be clear, so um, you know it, it's just is it. So I've been told it's not related, so that's good. Right, I guess. Um, but again, it, these are things that are popping up, though, and so I can't, I can't really definitively say, like, okay, is, like maybe next spasms are, are nothing. Maybe we all wake up that some sometimes, and we're like, hey, um, things are not feeling quite right or quite as well as they did yesterday for whatever reason, and that happens. But it kind of goes back to like what I said in the beginning of our conversation about when you deal with older pitchers, this is the risk that you take. Sometimes things just are going to happen, and they're, they're going to pop up that. Maybe it wouldn't have happened a few years ago. Um, but with Max, you know, he, he's dealt with some of these kinds of injuries before, though. Um, and he, he has been able to pitch with them. There were there were times, though, where, like, if it's not managed correctly, it could lead to a longer stint on the IL. And he's been outspoken about that. And so I, I think on one hand, like, you give him the credit for being proactive and for saying to the Mets that, like, hey, this is bugging me. I can't start today. And, like, He's been good about that by all accounts. But again, it's the fact that there are these things popping up. And then you add to the fact of like the sticky stuff suspension. So it's been a very up and down thing. And when you talk to people around the Mets, what they're maybe frustrated about is too strong of a phrase, but just just kind of bummed about is is the fact that he just hasn't been able to pitch every fifth or sixth day. It's It's been, okay, we, we think he's back from the suspension. Okay, the next thing pops up. Um, same thing when he was before he got suspended in that game against the Dodgers, he was coming off that back discomfort. And that was supposed to be the day that, hey, everything's great now with Max Scherzer. He feels great. He He's doing better, all this type of positive stuff. And then he gets hit with the suspension 10, 11, 12 games because of 12 days, I should say, because of the rainouts that they experienced. All of a sudden now he's pitched, what, six and a third innings over the last month. I mean, that's, that tells you all you need to know about where he stands and where the Mets rotation stands when you compare that to their overall figures when you talk about ERA and everything else that's gone wrong for them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You mentioned the bullpen. I mean, not having Edwin Diaz, we knew that was going to be tough just being one elite arm down in that unit. But the reason this team has underperformed is the starting pitching. The bullpen's actually been great so far. I think you're right to point out that if they continue relying on that group for this many innings, that's going to catch up with them. They're going to become less effective over the course of the season, barring further reinforcements, which will, of course, hinge on where they're at record-wise as the season rolls along. I think the hard thing about the Mets position right now is that you can look at the underperformance and the injuries and say, we're actually as good as we thought we were going into the season as long as none of these injuries are serious. And you can justifiably wait two plus months to do something. I made a strong case on the show yesterday that the Marlins are the kind of team that with their sort of start and they've won a whole bunch of one run games, they're the kind of team that can't afford to just wait things out. If they think they've got the pitching and they think that they've got the pieces in place to make a run, they should be aggressive, make early season trades. I don't think the Mets should do that because I think the Mets are, they're able to go out and spend whatever they need later, right? They can add pricey veterans to the trade deadline that don't require significant prospects via trade and just absorb payroll. Steve Cohen's willing to do that. So there's no need to overcorrect right now if you believe in the players that you believed in just two and three months ago, Starling Marte. I mean, what's different about him in your eyes compared to last season? He's the kind of player that I thought would continue to age very gracefully. Is this just a slow start, a normal rough patch of 30-ish games that he's going to turn around from? We're going to go at the end of the season, kind of look back and say, oh yeah, that was a pretty bad slump to begin the year, but he, he was the same player he's been for most of his career when the dust settled in September. Yeah, I agree with you. When you look at Marte, you say to yourself, okay, this is a guy who can age gracefully. He can maintain these skills uh, for at least a little while longer. And for the most part, like when you look at his numbers on baseball savants or wherever else, and and you kind of compare them to like last year, his career to me, like not a whole lot jumps out as far as like, yes, like there's some, there's some chase stuff there that you'd expect when a guy is slumping, it's a little bit up um, compared to where it used to be or where it was last year. And there's some, there's some numbers like that, but it, it, to me, I mean, unless I'm wrong, like maybe it's changed over like the last day or so or two days that I've checked, which is unlikely, but uh, it just wasn't as drastic as I expected it to be, except for like he's down very much so against fastballs. Um, so to me, that that may be like a timing issue for him. Uh, it could be some bad speed. I'm not sure. Um, and then the health thing, he had that play uh, about a month ago at this point where he slid, not awkwardly, but he kind of jammed his, like he hurt his neck at third base uh, sliding into it. And ever since he came back from that, um, the numbers have not been good. And if you recall, the first week or so of the season, he actually was pretty solid. Um, he was, it wasn't bad. And so that, that to me, you know, he said that he's been fine and he's, and he's maintained that he feels great and that it's not bothering him, but maybe it is. I don't know. Um, he's also somebody that's coming off the double groin surgery in the off season. Um, I think he has like two or three infield hits at this point, and that's a part of his game that um, 
we saw last year where like he'll preserve his i guess energy and sometimes he doesn't always run out like a routine six three ground ball um but when he could sn- uh, smell a hit he will bust bust it to first and, and he'll use that excellent speed to get that hit haven't really seen that a whole lot from him um even though the hard contact and is not as it was um there's some bad luck there too. The profile it looks like, uh, but again, not enough where you'd say to yourself, "Man, this guy, he just had he just had a raw deal at the plate or something like that." So it, it's concerning, like when you, especially like when you look at last year, he had the slow April, but then quickly turned it around in May. Uh, the Mets have already dropped him um, to six in their batting order the past couple of days. He was their typical number two guy. Um, and they moved up Brett Beatty to five. So they, they've made some changes, which signals to you and to me that, hey, maybe they, they can't really just wait for it, right? Like they just can't wait for Marte to suddenly figure it out anymore because they're they're under 500 and the offense is, is scuffling. And, and he's a big reason why, because he's good and, and they expected a lot from him. And last September when he was out, they clearly missed him. And now since he's struggling, they, clear, they clearly miss his presence again. Yeah, I think with Marte, the double groin surgery has been forgotten about by a lot of people. If you look at the sprint speed over at Baseball Savant, that is down in a big way compared to last season. Starley Marte last season was in the 68th percentile in sprint speed. It's particularly good for a guy well on the wrong side of 30. He's in the 38th percentile right now. So it's not necessarily that he's lost it for good. It's that it hasn't necessarily all come back yet post-surgery. I had that hit by pitch in the head during spring training. That cost him some time. Had that neck injury you mentioned too. So it's easy to see where it could be as much timing as it is something physically like breaking down on him for the long haul. So it'll be interesting to see if he's able to get back on track. Beatty moving up in the order makes all the sense in the world. I think one thing that Keith and I have talked about on this podcast over the years is that our expectations for young players get really blown out of proportion when someone like Juan Soto comes up and breaks the league right away. Beatty is doing everything he needs to do to stay in the lineup and be a consistently valuable performer. He's hitting the ball really hard, 52% hard hit rate so far, keeping the strikeouts in check as expected. It's always good to see that. I mean, for a guy that struck out kind of 23 to 25% of the time in the upper levels of the minor leagues, he's kept that number down at 20.5% so far. When you watch Beatty, do you see a guy who looks a little bit more polished beyond his years at the plate? Oh, totally. I love his at-bats. He's somebody that seems to know the strike zone really well, lays off close pitches, knows how to drive certain pitches or, or swing at pitches that he could drive, I should say. He's done a really good job of that, I thought. Um, we haven't seen like the the power really show itself quite yet, uh, but I think that's coming too. Um, again, like this is somebody that he hits balls so hard that for a while he was granted the limited that it bad at ball events, but he was like first on this team, like almost automatically as far as hard hit rate goes. And he, he's mostly maintained that even though um, the plate appearances have gone up and I don't want to say he's kind of gone through a mini, uh, a mini slump or something like that, even though the hits haven't fallen, because again, like the at-bats have been pretty good. Like it's not somebody that's kind of swinging out of his shoes or looks overmatched by any means. Um, you know, even when he strikes out, it's, it's like a long at-bat. He's not going down on like three or four pitches. I mean, he, he's looked really sharp um, and even defensively and, and like defensively, like that was kind of the knock on him for like a long time here. Um, he hasn't really made any bad plays. Yeah. I think he has, 
one error that jumps to mind that was that was a play that he definitely should have made but the routine plays he's made he's made a couple of flashy plays as well there's a lot to like there between him and and francisco alvarez um so if you're a mets fan and you're like desperate for any positive sort of uh sentiments whatsoever just remind yourself that they have those two guys at least and and the future looks okay yeah i think with alvarez too after the first 10 days you know he got a little more comfortable at the plate Numbers look a little better in this last stretch than they do overall this season. He's so young, too. We're talking about a guy that's still 21 years old. He won't turn 22 until November. We're not seeing as much hard contact yet from Alvarez that we've seen from Beatty. It's there. I think it's so easy to see the raw power with Francisco Alvarez. Give it some time. I think the bigger question is, how is he handling the pitching staff? Is he doing enough behind the plate defensively to remain a big part of this roster once Omar Narvaez is eventually healthy, because it seemed like defense was the main thing that initially kept Alvarez off this roster. Yeah, I've been thoroughly impressed with Alvarez defensively. I think the offense will definitely come around. Uh, we, we've seen glimpses of it. As you mentioned, it's been improved since that first uh, go around, and notably that Josh Hader at that, where he just looked totally overmatched. We're not really seeing that as much offensively, but to answer your question about the defense, it's been great. Uh, it's been like surprisingly great. And it gets better, I feel like, almost every, I don't want to say every day, but at least every series. Like, it, it looks noticeably improved where he was doing something. Um, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like, there were a couple of times where he'd get up and make a throw and he'd be, like, tardy or it would be a high throw to the second base. We've seen him a couple of times now stay stay low and stay to the ground and just make the throw from his knees and, and just release it quicker. And that led to an out, um, I, I believe, against the Reds. So he's made some like really interesting and um, maybe small um, to like a casual observer. But if you're like really studying him, it's a noticeable improvement with everything. The, the pitch framing has been elite almost if you look at it like it's, it's been like wow this guy's really good at this it's a it's a really good skill he has and maybe like you and i've talked about this over the years but omar narvaez being an excellent framer um maybe those skills that um helped uh alvarez as well and during spring training those conversations that all that work during those weeks whatever it is um it, it's good and it's definitely something that uh, has helped out the Mets. There was a couple of pitches that helped out Kodai Senga in a couple of those jams against the Reds recently. And I don't think he's been um, – maybe that first start with Max against the Dodgers um, where it looked like, okay, he he kind of like – when you looked at him, maybe he was like a little bit nervous out there almost. We haven't really seen that anymore. I mean, he's he's been pretty comfortable like um, talking to pitchers. That was one thing also that I noticed – he wasn't really doing that a whole lot, like going out to the mound when a guy was scuffling or uh, needed a breather. He didn't really have that feel for it. 21 years old, you just don't have that kind of feel for things like that when you're dealing with a rotation that features uh, the, the venerable 35, 36-year-old guys who've been around for a decade, for over a decade. Um, so, but but that's changed. Like he, He's gotten a little bit more comfortable doing that and, and kind of taking a little bit of charge and just knowing that um, something that Francisco Lindor actually told him was, hey, like you have um, a job here to do that the pitcher needs help no matter if he's 35 or 36 and you're the guy who's supposed to be helping him. So go ahead and do it. Yeah, getting confidence to do that is key for a young catcher. So it's nice to hear that that's something Alvarez has really started to develop here in the last few weeks. Looking at this division 
as a whole. I mean, the Marlins at 500 right now, I mentioned earlier, a lot of one-run wins. That's kept them afloat so far. The Phillies one game below 500, of course. We know Bryce Harper just recently returned from Tommy John surgery. The Mets are two below 500 right now. And the Nationals have been a little more feisty than people would have expected, only five games below 500. I think a lot of people looked at the Nationals and said, they're going to be as bad as a team like Oakland in the AL West. They could be that sort of rebuilder. Hasn't been the case so far. I look at this division, and I know Atlanta with that six-and-a-half game lead right now over the Marlins. They're up seven-and-a-half on the Mets. They look like the best team in the division by a little bit of a margin, but that might change in part because their rotation just took two pretty significant injuries with Max Fried and Kyle Wright. So I think a lot of this is we all want baseball to happen faster than it does. Teams have different ebbs and flows with health. The Mets maybe are through some of the worst parts of their pitching injuries. Hopefully for their sake they are. And maybe Atlanta is about to enter this phase for these next couple of months where they're pressed to really lean on their depth guys. And this could be an opportunity for the other teams at the division to make up some ground. Yeah, perhaps. Um, I, I mean, with the Braves, like there's still so much to like, though, even though like they're they could have those injuries. And I think that's kind of like what the most frustrating part or one of the most frustrating parts for Mets fans is, is that you see the Braves experience like, OK, this pitcher goes down, that pitcher goes down and nothing really changes. Like <laughs> they just bring somebody back up um, and he pitches fairly OK or, or even pretty good. And they just keep winning and the Mets keep losing and they just don't make up the ground there. Um, but aside from that, like they just have this like this complete lineup um, that I mean, you envy uh, for other teams because they have the power threat there. They they have guys at the top who could, who could set the table um, and they have depth to it, too. When you look at somebody like, you know, Sean Murphy, for instance, um, like that was a guy who when during the offseason, when the Mets were making a boatload of moves, I had multiple people tell me that. Sean Murphy addition by the Braves is the best move of this of this offseason. Um, maybe in this division, maybe beyond this division, but certainly in this division, it's the best move. Um, so there's that. As far as like the rest of it, um, you know, we were going to talk about like pleasant surprises uh, later on. Um, if we don't get to that, like the Marlins for me have been like the biggest surprise. I, I respect what they're doing. <laughs> uh, finally, <laughs> uh, you know, finally, like you can look at it and say, you know what they they got a couple of hitters uh, maybe and like it, it could be working out so that there may be a 500 team yeah they made the move for Luis Arias a bit of a, a strange trade but a trade they could afford to make because for the Marlins Pablo Lopez was surplus quality starting pitching that's something that organization in part because of its park and I think also because of their ability to develop pitching they have that skill Arias gives them something very different up top they're trying to be a team that makes more contact. They still haven't received a lot from Jazz Chisholm. I think that's one big thing that could change for them. If, if Jazz Chisholm becomes the the hitter that some of us expect him to be, where he's 15, 20% better than league average, that's much better than what they've got so far. You know, Garrett Cooper is one of those guys who's on and off the IL all the time. When he's out there on a per-game basis, he's a little bit underrated. I just think they have to go out and do something sooner rather than later. And Jorge Soler, by the way, is crushing the ball. So if you can get something from him... Maybe you get Jesus Sanchez to take that next step forward as a big side platoon masher. I know I'm putting a lot of conditional ifs on there. You can parlay what has been a very fortunate start playing well in those close games into something more if you get that growth across that lineup. And I think with the Phillies, you know, they're one of those teams that they're tough. Like they're they're well built. 
They haven't had a great start from Trey Turner relative to expectations for him. They've had a few things go right. Uh, obviously, the Reese Hoskins injury is a big one for them. They've kind of shuffled around. Alec Bohm plays a lot of first base. Edmundo Sosa is a regular for them right now or nearly a regular. But they've been able to get more from Brandon Marsh. That trade they made with the Angels last summer at the trade deadline, Logan Ohapi going to Anaheim, Marsh coming to Philadelphia. If not for that Ohapi injury especially, I think we'd be seeing that today as one of the clearest like win-win trades that teams made at the deadline last year. It will probably still in the long run turn out that way. But with the Phillies, the thing that I still like about them, Nola's probably going to be better than he's been so far. Wheeler is still good. Taiwan Walker is solid. Ranger Suarez is about to return this weekend. They still have a good rotation. And when you put that lineup with Harper back in it out there every single day, they can be a dangerous team. So I think it's still a tough division, even though we've had a handful of underperforming teams in it so far. Yeah, I agree. Uh, funny aside, like just to kind of give like perspective of like the Mets season, the Philly season, and probably the Braves season as well so far. So the Mets were on the West Coast trip, right? Uh, a few weeks, a couple of weeks back, and they performed very well. They racked up some wins. Um, this was the Dodgers, the A's, um, and the Giants. Um, and yes, you're going to look pretty good against the A's. That's the caveat. But they also like looked fairly good against the Dodgers and Giants as well. And so there was like this. Uh, there was another another evaluator that I know um, from a different team, and we were just talking about the division. And he goes to me. Um, like, you know, there's not a whole lot that separates the Braves and the Mets right now. Like, they're, I look at them as both very, very good teams. And then I asked, like, okay, so, like, what about the Phillies, though? And they're like, and he, the person says, oh, they're just a middling team. <laughs> and it's <laughs> right. I thought, I thought that was kind of harsh to call them a middling team. And it's just funny when, like, you look at it um, because now if you tell that story to Mets fans or anybody who's watched the Mets the past couple of weeks you're like whoa uh that's 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 um some praise that uh doesn't quite fit right now um but it also just shows you the perspective that maybe we lose in like a 10 to 12 game or 15 game sample too is that you know maybe this this is still a pretty solid team um even in comparison to the Braves yeah, I, I think people are underrating the depth of the Phillies lineup in part because of Marsh taking a step forward. Nick Castellanos looks like he's having a bounce back year so far. Sosa has been an adequate sort of replacement. And JT Realmuto is another one of those high level players who has not played at the level we expected him to. It's more likely than not they get a better version of JT Realmuto going forward. Even Kyle Schwarber has been a little bit down so far this year. They've had a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to go wrong, go wrong on the performance side. That, to me, is going to change. I don't know why the Phillies uh, get short shrift. I don't know if it's because of yeah, perceptions about them maybe being a, a poor defensive team because of a handful of pretty bad defensive players being mixed in the lineup every day. But I don't know. I think they've made a few nice moves to fix some of their flaws. And uh, I think they could still make a nice run if they're able to stay healthier going forward. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. 
Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Let's get to the NL Central for a bit. You spent some time in Milwaukee on the Brewers beat, and I think I was thinking a lot about the Brewers when I was talking about the Marlins having a trio of, of young pitchers that I really like. And the Brewers are kind of in that cycle right now where they're more veteran guys, of course, with Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, who's on the IL right now, Freddie Peralta being kind of the younger member of that trio. He's actually pitched very well so far this season. I feel like when you're a team that doesn't spend a lot on payroll, if you have three very good starters, you have to go for it. You have to be in win-now mode. And I think it's even clearer that you have to be that way in the NL Central. Do you see this team being comfortable pushing more chips in for right now, given the state of this division? The Cardinals being very down thanks to a slow start. They're certainly not out. There's still plenty of talent there, and this division just looks so winnable. The Pirates kind of coming back down to earth after their great start. The Cubs kind of being in that upward trajectory long term, but still not necessarily a great team. They're just kind of a, an okay middle of the pack sort of team. And the Reds still being in their rebuild. Is the time now for the Brewers to continue building on what they have right now before this core of great starters eventually starts to break up? I, I beat on that drum for so long, I felt like, during those those couple of years covering this team, right? Because the conversation hasn't really changed all that much in this division um, from, from like two years ago to now. Like, I, I just don't think it has because there were times where the Cardinals didn't look that good um, the past couple of years. And, and then, like, yes, they they would get on a run and they, they would do the Cardinals thing and still look good at the end. Um, but there were pockets during the season where, like, you know, I remember vividly in 2021, right, where like they looked the Brewers, I'm saying, looked in control for a while and they just never really pushed the pedal on it and said that, OK, we are going to go all in here. And that was the year where, uh, you know, Peralta, Burns and Woodruff were like doing historic things as a trio. And then still, like you just didn't augment it to the point where it made a considerable difference like yes you know they, they added like eduardo escobar i think and maybe a couple of other guys but like the, that was not going to change how you view the brewers it was a nice move and it, it helped and it made sense but it just didn't change the conversation around the team and so i look at it and like there's a little bit of a difference with like david stern's no longer running things and matt arnold in charge but 
at the end of the day, it's still mostly the same front office. I feel like it's still the same guys seated at that table, as far as I know, um, who, who are in position to make moves. And it's still the same ownership group. So it's like you have that combination. And so, like, yes, to me and to you, yes, this is the time to go for it because you have a pretty solid young team here. And you're maybe a piece away, um, maybe in that lineup even, where, like, you say to yourself, okay, like, now you're a very good team. And, like, there, there aren't as many questions about it. Uh, but I, I I wish it was the case for for the sake of that fan base. I just don't see it right now. And instead, unfortunately, you can make the argument um, for the opposite of that, that they may make another move like Josh Hader last year. Because if you look at Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Willie Adamas, those three guys, their value is never going to be higher than it will be this summer for them, right? Like that was the kind of the argument that we always heard with Josh Hader. It, the value is just going to decrease from now. Same thing, unfortunately. And and when you look at the the moves the Brewers made, even in the offseason, where they kind of got ahead of that a little bit with Renfro and they tried to, um, you know, make some swaps and try to come back pretty much even when you look at it. Like, the, you know, you trade the guy who's expensive by their standards uh, for some prospects. You add somebody like Jesse Winker, et cetera, with, with these types of moves. And it all is supposed to even out so back to where you were, basically. And it goes to the point where, okay, it's back to where you were, but it's not a step ahead or it's not a step better than what you were. So for me, that's always been my issue with the Brewers. So like, yes, I, I love to see them do it. Um, it's just for me, it remains to be seen because the past couple of years, they haven't really since like uh, the Yelich Kane moves uh, where they decided, uh, like, okay, we're, we're going to go for it now. Um they made some veteran moves like Moustakis, whatever, um, those years, but just not the last couple of years in a way of like a meaningful difference for me. It's a pretty interesting mix, though, of where the core guys in their lineup came from. Of course, they traded for Yelich back in January of 2018. It sounded that big extension. And ever since fouling the ball off his knee, he has just not been that MVP level player. And I will never be able to fully link that incident to this much of a drop off it just doesn't it doesn't fully check out in my mind we'll see what happens over the course of the season he's underperformed so far Jesse Winker and William Contreras were big additions via trade Contreras filled such a good long-term need because when you look at the farm system what they lacked was an impact catcher coming up and Contreras especially because of this organization's ability thanks to Charlie Green as their catching instructor to take guys who have defensive shortcomings and fix them and fix them quickly. That's a really nice thing to have because you knew with William Contreras, there's power. There was a good bat. So for them to not get Sean Murphy, but to sneak into that deal and get William Contreras out of it was a pretty shrewd move that really helps them beyond this season. I thought Jesse Winker was a smart addition at the time. I know when you, when you operate the way that teams like the Rays do, and that's the front office Matt Arnold came from a few years ago, you trade the guy that just performed and you go get the guy that you think is the same who underperformed because it saves you money. That's the thriftiness aspect. That's the, we think we can replace this guy. We can save money here and we can reallocate that money somewhere else on the roster. You you try that. A lot of times it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't know if you can make that call on May 12th. So far, it hasn't worked. I think the interesting thing about this team is they've got a handful of guys they actually drafted and developed themselves working at the bottom of the order right now. Bryce Terang is taking on a prominent role at second base. They've used him as the replacement for Colton Wong. Joey Weimer's playing a lot uh, in part because of the injury to Garrett Mitchell. He got called up when Luis Arias got hurt, but Weimer is their center fielder for the time being. 
And Tyrone Taylor is now back from the IL. He's a guy they drafted a long time ago, way back in 2012. So they've got this mix of guys they traded for, uh, kind of scrap heap type free agents like Brian Anderson, and then draft picks that have been in the system for a long time. So they are building a roster with a pretty good, healthy balance of things. But I'm glad it's not just me looking at this club and saying, you need to do a little bit more because I think the concern is that the Reds have a ton of young talent. They're going to get a lot better in the next two years. The Cubs have a great system, as Keith has talked a lot about on this show. They will be much better two years from now than they are right now. The Cardinals never really go away for long. So even if this ends up being an actual down year in St. Louis, you know that's not going to be the case. They're not going to be bad for two, three years at a time. That's almost impossible. The Pirates are getting better. Even though their fast start is looking like a mirage, they are also improving. So this time where the NL Central has been pretty flat is probably coming to an end, at least relatively speaking. And I hope I hope we see something. Maybe it's Jackson Churio. Maybe they go one more internal call-up. I mean, Jackson Churio is unlike any prospect the Brewers have had in this system in a very long time. I can't remember them having a an up-the-middle sort of player like this. A lot of times it's corner guys, right? It was Prince Fielder and Ryan Braun. Chorio is going to play center field, and he can do everything. He's more in that Ronald Acuna-type mold, which is a really exciting ceiling to have on a player coming up for a team that hasn't had guys like that really in the last 30 years. Yeah, I, I love Jackson, man. Like He was the guy who, when I was... The last prospect list I did, I guess, was before the 2022 season for them. And I had a, I had multiple people tell me put him number one, like put this guy number one. We don't, I don't <laughs> care about like where he's played, like just put him number one. And that was a hard thing to do at that point because that was before anybody had him as the top prospect, or really even in the conversation for the top prospect. Like that, it's been like a, a huge rise for him um, the past year or so. Um, but like the, the Brewers have liked him for a long time, as you know, and so I, I, it's probably a matter of time. It would be pretty bold, I think, to still call him up. Not out of the realm of possibility um, at some point this year, uh, but you're right. Uh, for me, like the division is getting a lot better, um, or or it has the potential to get a lot better over the next year or two, especially. Um, but for me, like yes, they could still continue. The the Brewers front office can continue to make these smart, savvy moves as far as like trading for Contreras or whatever else. But when you talk about adding payroll, that's where it gets a little bit like. Eh, I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing, because that's not something that we've seen recently. Yeah. Jackson Churio, by the way, 24.6% K rate at double A finished last season with six games at that level. I think it's going to take a big performance for him to earn a spot by the end of the season, but it's in the realm of possibility. They seem so high on him as an organization that you can't really rule anything out. Uh, other weird thing about this Brewers team this year, the bullpen is just not as deep as we've grown accustomed to. Generally, we look at this club and we see four or five relievers, at least the A bullpen being one that holds up with any other top-end bullpen in the league. Depth hasn't been there so far. We'll see if they're able to make that happen in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, Will, you mentioned uh, the Nationals, I think, as a, a bit of a pleasant surprise, or I think I mentioned them as a team that just wasn't as bad as we thought, but... Any other pleasant surprises as you've been covering the Mets, watching games throughout the season, either teams or players that have really kind of caught your eye in a good way? Yeah, for me, it's Brent Rooker. Uh, I think that guy's been tremendous. I mean, no surprise, right? He leads like Major League Baseball and like all these power statistics. Funny enough, he's somebody that I covered in at Mississippi State um, that year that he had like a terrific, just uh, unburly like season at that 
it was right before his draft, I believe, or it could have been two years before, whichever one. Um, if you look up his numbers, for people who are like really clamoring for him to um to stick or to like maintain like these like crazy numbers, yeah, maybe they won't be this great or th- this big. But if you go back and you look at who this guy is, he has shown this type of like profile at the college level, a little bit in the minor leagues too. Um, and so I'm happy that he's gotten a little bit of a or a, a lot of run here with a team. Like, yes, it's the A's, so like everybody gets run with them, but um, an issue for him is that he just never really had a whole lot of leash and a whole lot of playing time um, for a first-round pick. And I think a lot of that's because he was an older guy um, when he got drafted, too. Uh, he was, I believe he was a senior in college. Um, so sometimes that can work against you where, like, the clock is – it ticks a little bit faster for those guys. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been happy to see him, like, just continuously uh, – post up every day and 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 produce i mean it's been it's already middle of may and he's still he's still at it so hats off to him i think he deserves uh some recognition yeah i hope it continues 20.5 percent barrel rate so far this season for brent rooker i think the number i'm keeping a close eye on is that strikeout rate he's done a good job keeping that at a very manageable level 24.2 percent i want to see if the league finds different ways to get him out because the swing and miss was a bit of a problem for him in the upper levels of the minor leagues kind of an up and down guy between Minnesota, San Diego, and Kansas City the last couple of seasons. Nice to see him as one of the bright spots in Oakland this season. We are going to wrap things up on our way out the door. A quick reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. So be sure to sign up for that. If you're not already a subscriber, you can check out all of Will's great work covering the Mets. Does that in tandem with Mr. Tim Britton. So lots of great coverage there. And of course, league-wide, if you've got fantasy stuff or if you want to get into all the other sports we cover, you can't beat $2 a month for the first year. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.